Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Gastrointestinal stromal tumors, or GIST, are the most common soft tissue sarcoma of the GI tract. Recently approved medications, including repretinib and avapretinib, are providing new options for treatment of a matinib-resistant disease. Dr. Michaela Rice, an oncology pharmacist, will give us the gist of treating this disease by reviewing its pathophysiology, unique mutational landscape, and the pharmacology of these newer agents. In my presentation today, we're going to be reviewing the pathophysiology of gastrointestinal stromal tumors, describing the pharmacology of medications used to treat gastrointestinal stromal tumors, and discussing the place in therapy of new treatment options, including repretinib and avapretinib. So what, what are gastrointestinal stromal tumors? They're also referred to as GISTs or GISTs, and it's the most common soft tissue sarcoma of the gastrointestinal tract arising from the mesenchymal cells. The worldwide incidence is estimated to be 10 to 15 per 1 million, and the disease originates from the interstitial cells of Kajal, or precursor cells of these, that are responsible for the peristalsis of our GI tract. GIST commonly results from KIT and PDGFRA oncogenic gain-of-function mutations, which lead to activation of tyrosine kinases and creating overstimulation or overproliferation of these um, GIST cells. I first saw a patient with GIST as a PGY1 resident on the GI service, and at the time the patient was taking imatinib and was having some complications of gastrointestinal bleeding. Since that time, as a PGY2, I've more so heard about use of imatinib in patients with leukemias, specifically CML, um, but it is one of the medications that was originally approved back in 2002 for use in GIST. And it was one of the first times when we had an oncologic disease that was uh, very well targeted by a molecular, a molecular, a molecular targeting agent um, such as imatinib. In the last year, in 2020, we've seen two other medications um, in addition to some previously approved tyrosine kinase inhibitors that have again kind of allowed us to further our care for these patients um, using specific um, molecular targets. How does GIST present? It's asymptomatic in about 20% of cases, being an incidental finding on abdominal CT scans. And most patients will remain asymptomatic until the tumor grows to a size of about six centimeters, which is the median tumor size at the time of diagnosis. Symptoms that patients experience can include early satiety, abdominal discomfort, intraperitoneal hemorrhage, GI bleeding, and fatigue. And up to 20% of patients will present with metastatic disease. It's rarely in the lymph nodes, but more commonly in the liver or within the abdominal cavity. As you can see here, the stomach is the most common site of the GIST tumors, um, followed by the small intestine and then other locations throughout the GI tract, ranging from the esophagus, the duodenum, rectum, etc. It's best using CT imaging, and then a tissue is acquired through endoscopic guided finial aspirate to allow for morphologic evaluation, followed by immunohistochemical staining. So this staining will look for CD117, 
which is the antigen that's also C-kit or that kit um, tyrosine kinase, DOG1 and or CD34. Patients will also have molecular genetic testing done to identify specific KIT and PDGFRA mutations. Prognosis for patients with GIST is based on the tumor size as well as the mitotic rate. So when we're thinking about the mitotic rate, that's specifically looking at how many cells are undergoing the M phase or mitoses um, at 50 high power fields on a microscope. It's also divided between patients who have gastric or stomach GIST or non-gastric GIST with non-gastric GIST typically having a poor prognosis overall. As you can see in patients who have tumor sizes that are less than two centimeters, our rate of metastatic disease is very low. So these patients tend to have very favorable outcomes and may not necessarily warrant management. Uh, but as our tumors increase in size, we see that our risk for metastases or complications also increases um, more, more quickly on that non-gastric side than on the gastric side. As I had mentioned, it's also very important to look at our various KIT and PDG-FR-alpha mutations. 80% um, of patients will have KIT mutations, with the most common of those being exon 11. And this is identified in GISTs that present throughout the gastrointestinal tract. Less common are mutations in exon 9, which um, is more so limited to the intestine. Um, and exon 9 can uh, sometimes confer uh, resistance or um, make patients less sensitive to imatinib. The PDGFR-alpha mutations are identified in 10 to 15% of patients, and then a few patients do present with wild-type um, GIST tumors, some of which may be SDH deficient. Here at Mayo Clinic, we have a GIST panel that we run on patients who have GIST tumors, and this is essentially a next-generation sequencing that evaluates for those somatic alterations within KIT and PDGFR-alpha genes. Some of the less common driver mutations that you might see would include BRAF, NF1, NTRK, and FGFR fusions. The key principles of management first includes surgical resection. This is our preferred approach whenever possible uh, for patients with metastatic disease or tumors that would be too difficult to resect based on location and um, size. Um, we might not be able to do sur surgery, but this is generally the preferred approach. In general, GISTs are also resistant to conventional chemotherapy, so we're not able to use a lot of our conventional chemotherapy agents, and that's why when we did identify that these tumors responded to imatinib, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, um, it kind of changed and revolutionized how we were able to care for these patients. And then finally, the frequency of KIT and PDGFR alpha activating mutations has led to the use of these tyrosine kinase inhibitors as the primary treatment modality. So when we're thinking about management, we'll first consider the size of the tumor and the location. For patients whose tumor size is less than two centimeters and in the gastric region, we'll consider whether patients have high-risk features or no high-risk features on imaging. And some of these include irregular border, ulceration, heterogeneity, and others. For patients who have no high-risk features, we can just under have them undergo surveillance with routine imaging. However, if there are high-risk features, it is recommended that those patients undergo complete surgical resection. For patients who have tumor sizes two centimeters or greater or any size non-gastric tumors, it's recommended that patients with resectable uh, tumors with minimal morbidity undergo that complete surgical resection upfront. For patients who are deemed to have resectable disease but that might have greater morbidity with a surgical operation, 
we do use a neoadjuvant TKI. So this is use of one of those tyrosine kinase inhibitors before surgery to help decrease the size of that tumor and possibly allow for a less complicated procedure. Following use of that neoadjuvant TKI, the patient would be again assessed to determine if that would be resectable, and if so, that patient would undergo a complete surgical resection. Following surgical resection, the patient would undergo either surveillance or if they had intermediate or high-risk disease, they would receive an adjuvant TKI um, to allow for better control of their disease going forward. So as I mentioned, our first-line drug and the first drug approved for GIST um, that was a tyrosine kinase inhibitor was imatinib. Um, it's one of the first molecularly targeted drugs available in medical oncology, and it's a competitive inhibitor of BCR-ABLE, which is why it is used in our CML population, ARG, KIT, and PDGFR alpha and beta. To talk a little bit more about that neoadjuvant or preoperative use, there were multiple prospective studies that demonstrated improved resectability and reduced surgical morbidity with the use of preoperative imatinib in patients who had imatinib-sensitive mutations. Patients should be considered to have this if they have a tumor located in the rectum, esophagus, esophagastric junction, or duodenum, or if they have multivisceral resections required. In terms of postoperative use of imatinib or adjuvant use, um, it should be noted that complete resection of the tumor is possible in 85% of patients. However, about 50% or more of those patients will develop recurrence or metastases. And the five-year survival rate is about 50%. So even when we can completely resect that tumor, we still don't have favorable outcomes in a lot of cases because of recurrence. The PERSIST study demonstrated the utility of five-year adjuvant imatinib with patients having very low rates of recurrence when they were continuing on imatinib. And this was specifically for patients with intermediate or high risk of recurrence following complete resection. It should be noted that about half of the patients in that study did discontinue imatinib, and that put them at a higher risk for recurrence. Imatinib has also been investigated in the metastatic or unresectable disease setting. So there were trials that looked at this, and the first was a phase two trial back in 2002. And this was actually the trial that led to imatinib's approval in this setting. It was in patients with advanced GIST, and they assessed two different doses of imatinib. 400 milligrams daily and 600 milligrams daily, finding similar response rates for both of those doses. Following that, there were two phase three trials that were ongoing internationally and then in the US looking at advanced GIST or metastatic or surgically unresectable GIST. In these studies, they again assessed two different dosing levels of imatinib, finding similar response rates for both, as well as similar progression-free and overall survival. It should be noted that this overall survival is quite a bit higher than what had been seen in the pre-imatinib area where patients were only surviving about 10 to 20 months versus 3.9 um, to 4.6 years. Based on these studies, they did recommend that the 400 milligram daily dosing would be recommended for patients with GIST, but there are certain cases such as patients with the exon 9 mutation where you actually would use a 400 twice daily dosing strategy, which would come with a few additional adverse effects. So now that we've talked about neoadjuvant TKI use and adjuvant TKI use, I want to talk about those patients who may not be surgical candidates and who may progress when on imatinib or not have a response to imatinib. Here I'll present a patient case. The patient, ST, is a 52-year-old male with a history of GIST diagnosed in 2014. 
The patient presented with anemia and melena, and a CT at the time demonstrated a 6.1 centimeter small bowel mass. In October, there was an exploratory laparotomy with biopsy demonstrating high-risk gist with six, five to six mitoses per 50 HPF. And in November of 2014, an MRI demonstrated that there were innumerable mesenteric and peritoneal tumor nodules, as well as two areas suspicious for metastatic gist. The patient was deemed not to be a surgical candidate and initiated on imatinib. This brings us to our first audience response question. Which statement is true regarding the initiation of imatinib in, patients, in patient ST? A, imatinib is active against KIT and PDG-FR-alpha tyrosine kinases. Genetic alterations do not affect the clinical activity of imatinib. Imatinib is useful only in the adjuvant setting. Or D, the recommended dose of imatinib is 600 milligrams twice daily. I'll give you some time to read through this and answer on Poll Everywhere. Um, you can see the information here of how to access Poll Everywhere by either texting MayoRx to 22333 or going to polleverywhere.com slash MayoRx. And I'll give some time for the votes to come in from outside of the room as well. All right, so I'll go ahead and agree with the majority of the responses here. A was the correct answer. Imatinib is active against KIT and PDGFRA tyrosine kinases. B is incorrect, as we did discuss the genetic alterations can affect the activity of imatinib, and this may lead us to use some alternative tyrosine kinase inhibitors in its place. C is incorrect, because imatinib has also demonstrated utility in the neoadjuvant, or pre-surgical setting, um, as well as in the, the setting of patients with unresectable or metastatic disease. And then finally, D is incorrect. The recommended dose would be 400 milligrams daily or perhaps 400 milligrams twice daily, depending on the mutational status. So we've mentioned imatinib resistance. Primary resistance to imatinib occurs in about 15% of patients, and this is defined as resistance that occurs within the first six months of treatment, and it's typically a result of some of these pre-existing mutations. Um, so in the kit group, um, we have exon 9 and exon 11, Exon 11 tends to be more sensitive to imatinib, and exon 9 it tends to be less sensitive to imatinib. And these exons are essentially coding certain pieces and parts of our kit um, TKI, which is shown here um, in the image. PDG-FRA mutations um, can also have an effect on imatinib activity. So exon 18, specifically D842V, um, is intrinsically insensitive to imatinib. So those might be cases where patients will not respond at all to imatinib use. More than 80% of patients will eventually develop disease progression driven by secondary resistance that occurs after six months. And this is based on selective pressure of treatment with imatinib that leads to acquired secondary mutations in KIT exons, such as mutations in the ATP binding pocket or the activation loop. Our second line option that was um, approved is sunitinib. And this is an oral multi-targeted receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitor that has anti-angiogenic and anti-tumor activities. Uh, there was phase one and two data that showed clinical activity in patients with imatinib-resistant disease. And this comes because um, imatinib and sunitinib both bind to the ATP binding pocket, but sunitinib is a smaller molecule, and it's able to avoid some of the steric hindrance that prevents imatinib from binding as a result of mutations. Sunitinib also does affect several other receptors, such as the VEGF receptor, 
which is one of the um, receptors that can stimulate angiogenesis, creating blood vessel support for our tumors to continue to grow. So this was approved based on a phase three trial looking at resist patients with resistant um, or intolerant to GIST who had been previously treated with imatinib. And they looked at 50 milligrams daily, four weeks on, two weeks off versus placebo, finding a significant difference and a significant improvement in progression-free survival. Resistance to synonym, unfortunately, does generally develop within one year of treatment. So while this provides additional time, um, it does eventually require alternative therapy. So then our third line option is regorafenib. Regorafenib is a novel oral multikinase inhibitor, and it blocks activity of several protein kinases shown here. Phase two data showed activity in patients with TKI-resistant disease, and it was approved based off of the GRID trial which was in, done in patients with metastatic or unresectable GIST who had failed prior imatinib and sunitinib. It was studied at a dose of 160 milligrams daily versus placebo. And the progression-free survival, again, was statistically significantly different favoring sunitinib. The difference for, or sorry, um, versus regorafenib, and the difference in the mechanism of action for regorafenib is it actually targets the activation loop portion versus the ATP portion, overcoming again some of those secondary resistant mechanisms that we saw with imatinib and sunitinib, which target the ATP binding pocket. So back to our patient case. Um, our patient had been started on imatinib 400 milligrams daily. And in June of 2015, the CT demonstrated complete response. However, in March of 2017, the CT did demonstrate progression with largest lesion measuring 3.1 centimeters. The imatinib dose was increased to 300 milligrams BID, which is something you'll occasionally see to try and overcome that resistance. But then again in May, the patient did um, have a CT demonstrating further progression. So this time, uh, having been resistant to imatinib, which strategy would you recommend for ST? Surgical intervention, paclitaxel, sunitinib, or regorafenib? All right. So we'll go with that, and again, I'll go with the majority recommending sunitinib. So this patient failed first-line imatinib, and our standard second-line approved therapy is sunitinib. Regorafenib would be a potential option in the third-line setting. Um, paclitaxel is a traditional chemotherapy agent, and there has been some data to suggest it might have some activity in GIST, but it is not one of our approved therapies and is not commonly used. Um, and then in terms of surgical uh, intervention, the patient would be evaluated again um, to see if surgical intervention was possible, um, but based on the progression, that was deemed not to be the case. So these were the TKI therapies that we had kind of up until 2020, with regorafenib being the most uh, recently approved previous to that time. But then in 2020, we saw a new approvals for avapritinib and repretinib. Avapritinib was approved in the first-line setting for patients with PDG-FRA exon 18 mutations, including mutations in D842V, and repretinib was approved in the fourth-line setting. We'll first focus on avapritinib. So avapritinib was approved based on the Navigator trial. Um, one thing to note is that imatinib and other TKIs, so the other two that we've already talked about, don't target that PDG-FRA D842V mutation. And this is the primary driver mutation in about, in about 5 to 6% of GIST, so a small group of the population. Um, but it's a mutation that occurs in that activation loop portion that causes the shift into active conformation. So 
basically the PDG FRA is blocked or locked into this active confirmation. Avapritinib is designed to potently and selectively target that active confirmation of both KIT and PDG FRA via type 1 inhibition mechanism. So the difference between type 2 inhibition and type 1 inhibition is that in type 2 inhibition, imatinib, sunitinib, and regorafenib only are able to target the inactive conformation, whereas avapritinib has type 1 inhibition targeting the active types. So for patients who have that mutation, have the PDG FRA continuously locked in the active conformation, avapritinib allows for activity. This was approved based on a study that was a phase 1, two-part, open-label dose escalation and dose expansion study. In the dose escalation portion, 46 adult patients with unresectable GIST were included, and 20 of these patients had that specific PDG-FRA mutation. In the dose expansion portion, they had 36 adult patients with that mutation specifically added to the group um, that had GIST regardless of prior therapy. So it could be first-line use, second-line use, third-line use, etc. For their intervention, they started in the dose escalation portion with a 30 milligram daily dose and then increase the dose once daily in continuous 28-day cycles. They did select a dose for dose expansion of 300 milligrams once daily. The primary endpoints for the dose escalation portion was finding that maximum, maximum tolerated dose, finding the recommended phase two dose, and then determining safety. And in the dose expansion, they were looking at overall response and safety. Looking at our baseline characteristics, the median age is about typical for what you would see with patients with GIST. And as you can see, most patients had received one prior line of therapy, but otherwise it was quite spread across the board of numbers of previous therapies. Patients were stratified based off of um, ECOG performance status. And then you can also see that the primary tumor sites uh, match up with um, what we tend to see in our populations. So here we looked at overall response rate, um, and they looked at this for all doses as well as patients at that recommended phase two dose of 300 milligrams. And what we see is um, quite impressive compared to what we see with many of our second line, third line TKI ages that really don't achieve a great response, but more so maintain stable disease. Um, and looking also at our 12-month duration of response, we saw a rate of 70%. Looking at 12-month progression-free survival, 81% had achieved that. And then looking at estimated 12-month overall survival, 91% of patients had achieved that. So again, we're seeing quite favorable outcomes and have a group of patients who previously had had very limited overall survival outcomes, um, again, kind of being within that 15-month range. They also did a second trial. This is the Voyager trial, which is a phase three trial and in this trial, they looked at adult patients with locally advanced or metastatic or unresectable GIST. And these patients had been previously treated with imatinib and one or two other TKIs. In this study, they compared avapritinib to regorafenib, and they assessed progression-free survival, finding no statistically significant difference. So based on this, avapritinib had failed to meet the primary endpoint of progression-free survival, and it was actually denied approval by the FDA for use in fourth-line GIST. Um, so I think this is interesting because we don't usually see medications like this go up against an existing medication. We'll often see them go up against placebo, kind of as we had seen with some of our prior lines of therapy. Um, so this certainly was an interesting finding, um, and it really limits the scope of avapritinib abuse to that first-line setting in those patients with that specific mutation or off-label as use um, 
after these other approved therapies have been tried. So why might this have happened? Well, we know avapritinib binds to that active conformation. Regorafenib does have many more off-target effects that could potentially affect the tumor microenvironment, tumor angiogenesis, and oncogenesis that might also have a positive impact on the efficacy of regorafenib for these patients. So now with that, we'll move on to repretinib. Repretinib was approved based on the Invictus trial, and it's a switch control TKI that broadly inhibits KIT and PDG-FRA kinase signaling through a dual mechanism of action. It has specific and durable binding to both the switch pocket and the activation loop, and it locks the kinase in the inactive state. So with this broad inhibition, it does cover patients with wild-type KIT and PDG-FRA mutations, patients with multiple types of primary mutations, including potentially that um, exon 18 mutation as well, and then multiple secondary mutations. In the Invictus trial, they looked at 154 adult patients with advanced GIST with progression on imatinib, sunitinib, and regorafenib. They were randomized to receive, to receive repretinib or placebo, and the primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Again, looking at our baseline characteristics, they were um, well-matched, and patients' um, were age range was um, kind of right around, again, what we would expect, around 60. Um, they were stratified based on number of prior therapies and ECAR performance status. And then again, the primary tumor sites tend to match what we would expect. They did include patients with a variety of different primary mutations. Looking at efficacy, we saw an improvement in both progression-free and overall survival, with progression-free survival on repretinib being 6.3 months and patients achieving an over, a median overall survival of 15.1 months. So with that, I'll go on to our next audience response question. How does avapritinib achieve clinical activity in patients with GIST harboring PDG-FRA D842V mutations? All right, so we're a little bit more closely tied um, this time around. Um, and I'm going to say that answer D would be the correct answer. So avapritinib is the one that binds to the active conformation of KIT and PDG-FRA, and that allows for it to overcome um, the exon 18 mutation, um, which con continuously locks um, PDG-FRA into that active conformation. Repretinib is actually the medication that binds to the switch pocket, and the activation loop and locks that kinase in the inactive state. So I can see why those two were the ones that were competing um, because they both kind of work on that idea that um, of the active versus inactive states. Uh, B would be the um, mechanism of action of sunitinib, and then C would be the mechanism of action of regorafenib. So jumping back into our patient case, um, in May of 2017, our CT demonstrated progression, and imatinib was discontinued, and as the audience had suggested, um, sunitinib was initiated at this dose of 37.5 milligrams daily, which is an alternative dose that had been approved um, based on some follow-up data. In June of 2017, the patient experienced significant cytopenias with neutropenia, and the sunitinib dose was reduced to 25 milligrams, and then later 12.5 milligrams. In December of 2017, CT demonstrated progression again, and the patient was switched to regorafenib, 40 milligrams, two tablets every other day. So you might note that this dose is lower than the target dose of 160 milligrams daily, um, but that dose of regorafenib of 160 milligrams daily can be very difficult to tolerate. So a lot of times what we'll see in other patient populations 
where this drug is used is kind of a titration up to that dose based on patient tolerability. In March of 2018, the patient did undergo extensive debulking surgery, and the regorafenib dose was increased to 40 milligrams, two tablets, alternating with 40 milligrams, one tablet every other day. The patient again progressed in October of 2018, and at this time, the patient was started on, on repretinib, 150 milligrams daily, on a clinical trial here. This lasted for quite some time, but in April of 2020, the patient uh, had CT demonstrating progression, and the repretinib dose was increased to 150 milligrams twice daily. Some of the repretinib-related adverse effects that the study coordinator had noted as possible or probable included fatigue, neutropenia, diarrhea, gastroparesis, myalgia, blood bilirubin increase, muscle weakness, alopecia or hair loss, arthralgia, skin changes, abdominal pain, and new nevi or moles. Um, so these are very typical of the adverse effects that we'll see with a lot of our tyrosine kinase inhibitors that we talked about today. Um, and they can be pretty significant adverse effects um, leading to dose reductions and discontinuations in quite a few patients. In November of 2020, the CT again demonstrated progression, and the patient was switched to avapritinib, 300 milligrams daily. And so you'll note this isn't the um, specific setting where avapritinib has been approved by the FDA, but it can be considered for patients who have failed the approved therapies. And in January of 2021, the plan was to switch to an alternative clinical trial, which is yet to be determined um, due to progression, adverse events, um, including cytopenias, decreased appetite, and fatigue. So I'll touch a little bit more on the toxicity profiles. Some of the shared adverse effects that we see commonly in our patients would be fatigue, that gastrointestinal toxicity, so diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, hepatotoxicity, which in some cases can um, occur as acute hepatitis, hair color changes, and this is actually an interesting one. It's related to the kit inhibition that we see with patients, um, and that's effect on the pigmentation of our hair follicles. So um, when you have patients who may be off or on of a tyrosine kinase, you can actually see kind of white lines of hair um, going down based on when they were starting and uh, continuing on uh, these kit inhibitors versus when they were off of therapy. You can also see hematologic toxicities. We saw that in this patient with the various cytopenias and neutropenias. And then patients can have hemorrhage as well. I then further broke it down into some specific adverse effects to keep in uh, the front of your mind when seeing each of these therapies. So for imatinib, it does have more profound hematologic toxicity many times. You can see fluid retention and edema, and again, that hepatitis. With sunitinib, you can see hand-foot syndrome, hypertension, and that's oftentimes related to that VEGF effect that we see with that medication. And you can see some cases of QT prolongation. With regorafenib, again, we see the hand-foot syndrome, hypertension, impaired wound healing. With repretinib, again, it's the same with um, the hand-foot syndrome, hypertension, impaired wound healing. And then interestingly, also seeing cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. The rates of this were actually fairly high at about 5%, with a median time to onset of 4.6 years. So certainly something to counsel patients on and have them use um, sun protection um, as, as best as they are able as well while they're on that medication. And then finally, avapritinib has some unique adverse effects. So it has cognitive effects that occur in about 40% of patients, and this can include memory impairment, cognitive disorder, confusional state, and encephalopathy. Um, and 
back when they were looking at that dose escalation portion of that study, they actually did increase to a dose of 400 milligrams daily at one point, but then decided to use a dose of 300 milligrams based on um, the decreased risk of adverse effects at that dose level. You can also see fluid retention and edema with avapertinib, and then they also did have two patients who had intracranial hemorrhages, so that's something else to keep in mind. Looking at drug interactions with a lot of these, we see uh, metabolism by CYP3A4, so it's important to watch out for drug interactions with that. Um, imatinib can also affect drugs that are substrates of CYP3A4 or CYP2D6. So warfarin is a prime example of a drug that might be affected. With sunitinib, you also have to consider QT prolonging medications. The regrafinib, consider BCRP substrates. And then avapertinib, any other medications potentially affecting the CNS. Here I included, based on NCCN's recommendations, a few other medications that might be useful in certain circumstances. So like we said, avapertinib can sometimes be used in that fifth-line setting off-label. Cabozantinib, dasatinib, which is one of our other DPIs we see in the leukemia patient population. Everolimus, in combination with some of our already approved TKIs. Um, Lerotrectinib or entrectinib for patients who have that NTRK gene fusion. Nilotinib, pazopinib, and serafinib. So what's coming next? There are a few interesting things um, that are in trials currently. Um, one of those is looking at alternating tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So this was a phase 1b trial that looked at alternating sunitinib and regorafinib. These have um, complementary activity against kit resistance mutations. If we think back to what their mechanisms are, sunitinib targets the ATP binding pocket, whereas regorafinib targets the activation loop. So the thought is that kind of combining those two mechanisms might allow for uh, prolonged response. So this study was specifically looking at patients with TKI refractory GIST. So all of those 14 patients had previously received imatinib, sunitinib, regorafinib, and then potentially other therapies as well. So these were not new drugs being introduced to these patients at the time. The intervention consisted of three days of sunitinib followed by four days of regorafinib, and that was repeated cyclically. The doses are seen here, um, and as you can see, the progression-free survival was 1.9 months. What they were primarily assessing in this study was seeing what doses to do and then also seeing what the tolerability would be. And part of the rationale for alternating these therapies is trying to limit toxicities, whereas if you're using these medications at the same time, you might see compounded toxicities. Some other ongoing trials are looking at other various TKIs. One of the ones I want to point out is crinolinib. Um, there's a phase three trial ongoing, and this, medica this medication has a similar mechanism of action compared to avapertinib, where it's working on that active conformation. We're also looking at the use of MEK inhibitors. So binimetinib is a MEK inhibitor, and we're pairing it with TKIs because when used alone, um, our tumor cells can overcome the MEK inhibition by activating some upstream tyrosine kinases. So the thought is that pairing MEK with some of these other tyrosine kinase inhibitors might allow for synergy in treating the disease. There are also ongoing trials looking at immunotherapy in patients with GIST, and then some other trials looking at other agents such as Selenexor in combination with imatinib, paclitaxel, and temozolomide, which are some of our more traditional chemotherapy options. So in summary, GIST commonly results from those mutations in KIT or PDGFRA, which are oncogenic gain of function mutations that lead to the activation of those kinases. 
Approved tyrosine kinase inhibitors have a wide um, variety of binding profiles and mechanisms, which provide new opportunities for patients with primary and secondary imatinib resistance. And I think as the years go on, we'll continue to see much more targeted approaches in how we're managing patients with GIST. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.